church. It's good to be together. Um, thank you for uh, bearing, bearing with us as we read the scripture a little bit longer than we're typically used to, but uh, it's such a good passage, and uh, I'm excited about sharing this evening. Uh, this evening's passage uh, from Daniel 4, it's, it's a really interesting passage. It's In some senses, it's a pinnacle passage in Daniel for where we've come, at least to date. Um, it's wrapping up the writings involving King Nebuchadnezzar. So um, from the beginning, you'll recall that King Nebuchadnezzar was his armies that um, brought Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, into Babylon. And um, he has been reigning since the beginning of the book. Um, This chapter, some would say, actually, we get to witness, and I I would agree with uh, those, um, that we actually get to witness the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar, which is somewhat insane. Um, But uh, not insane, because we know our God, but pretty awesome. Um, Because to date, we've been, you know, a lot of the stories we've covered, we've seen the Lord working, calling, drawing Nebuchadnezzar. He's been doing supernatural works, or God has been doing supernatural works, and um, has been reaching out to and calling to Nebuchadnezzar through the lives and testimony of um, God's children, namely Daniel and um, his three friends. Um, so similar to, similar to some of the previous passages, tonight we're going to be looking at a passage where, again, the Lord shows up supernaturally. And they hear again in a dream, and um, Daniel does his uh, interpretation. Um, however, this time, whereas in the past we've seen King Nebuchadnezzar respond with um, maybe a decree of the Lord's uh, strength and awesomeness, but Historically, it has not proved to be um, a decree of asking or like, I guess, submitting to the Lord's kingship and lordship because we see his life continues essentially unregenerate um, to date. So um, just a couple other things I wanted to just point out before we get into is um, this passage is the, the passage is actually written in a unique way. It's written in the first person from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. So it actually serves as almost a personal testimony or like a decree, which wouldn't be unusual in that day for a king to dictate, um, you know, historical events and like the time during his ruling, um, dictate what is going on and a scribe would write it down. But in this case... For most of this passage, it is in the first person and it is brought into the scripture. There is a section 19 through 33 um, where it turns to the third person, but, and we could go into that, but we don't have time. So, um, but nonetheless, it's very interesting. You have King Nebuchadnezzar and he essentially is offering this passage as a, as a decree of his one could say his personal testimony or possibly coming to Christ. Um, And we see that right at the beginning, you know, the the first three verses is essentially a a doxology or or a declaration of praise. And um, I love it because in verse, um, yeah, in verse one, he, he says exactly who he's directing this passage to. It's all peoples, all nations, 
all languages that dwell on the earth. And I hope that tonight's passage, I hope that um, as we work through it, you can see, I believe that this passage with all my heart is, speaks to every one of us, um, every person of all time that's ever walked on the face of the planet. I think you will see that it, um, it will speak to all of us and we all may uh, feel some conviction. And then at the end of the passage, you know, it closes with a final, what you might say, a closing uh, doxology where, again, Nebuchadnezzar prays and extols the Lord, the King of heaven, he calls him. And we, we hope and pray that, I mean, I don't pray, I guess, we hope, hope that this was a true conversion. So um, with that as a background, um, I want to do two things as we work through this passage. And I'll be the first to say it's a long passage. I'm going to take a very, like a survey look at it. Uh, we'll probably stick around and go through it again next week. But today we're going to cover the whole thing. And I want to draw two specific things. One, I want to look at the dangers of pride. Pride is, uh, well, I'll go into pride, but like that, we want to look at the dangers. This, this passage unquestionably is dealing with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. We see God of heaven addressing that, and he's, you know, in no unquestionable terms, says that's what he is addressing. And the second thing I want to look at is just the way of our humble king. So you have the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, and then you have the different way, the way of our humble king. So jumping right in, pride may rightly be considered um, the chief of all sins, um, many, if not most, of the sins that we deal with on a daily basis and, you know, common sins that we'd say we struggle with and battle with in life at their root cause come back to pride. It is pride that caused Lucifer, the, the prince of the angels, the most beautiful created angel that God ever um, I guess created, yes, um, the most beautiful of all the angels to be cast out of heaven and actually become the devil himself. Um, it was pride that caused Adam and Eve to forsake their intimate daily relationship with God where they walked and talked with God in the garden. They forsook that for a promise that they might be like God, be essentially an equal with God. And it is pride, I would argue, that keeps every one of us from, from experiencing just the fullness of joy, the fullness of joy that God intends for us and wants for us in our relationship with him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, speaking of pride, he says, this is um, pretty incredible. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone loathes when they see it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. You hear that? There's no fault we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
So you can see why I, I believe with Nebuchadnezzar that uh, tonight's word from the Lord uh, should address and will speak to every one of us that has ever existed. Um, so this passage in Daniel, it's, it's a shouting warning to those who maybe are prideful and love it and embrace it, but also just to us who live every day, every human, everywhere, all of us struggles with pride to one degree or the other. This started back with Adam and Eve, and it continues today. So with that as a, as a somewhat long intro, uh, let's jump in. And looking at uh, verse, verse 4, um, so where Nebuchadnezzar, he starts his testimony, if you will, after a brief intro. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. So Nebuchadnezzar, I love this because he, he testifies right from the get-go. He was living the high life. Likely this, this passage was towards the end of his reign, um, and he had accomplished much. Um, he, he had accomplished much through conquest, many building projects. He, he was a man at ease, and he had much to be proud of. And yet we find that he has this dream that makes him terrified, essentially. He says the visions of his head alarmed him. And in a like pattern, it's uh, as, as a man who is very confident in himself, um, he does what he has done in the past. He calls on his team of wise men. Um, I love this. You know, he calls on his magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, um, if there was a problem in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he always had a solution. He was the king of, at that time, the most powerful empire. And he had a team at his disposal. Some would you know, question why he didn't go directly to Daniel after we know in previous chapters that you know, Daniel was the only... Uh, I don't know if you want to call him magician, but he, he was the only one who could interpret uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the past. Why did, he know, why did he not go directly to Daniel? And obviously, there's lots of speculation on this. But I, I would argue that he did go to Daniel because in one sense, he didn't want, he doesn't like the idea of there being a God that is above all and by default, if there is a king of kings, if there is a lord of all lords, that would include him. And it's someone that he would have to submit to. If, if he can address this issue on his own, if he has in his own resources um, or his team of resources uh, the ability to solve this problem, why, why would he need God? Why would he need the king of the universe? So, nonetheless, uh, as, as things often go, uh, he didn't know he had a problem until he really realized he had a problem. And in verse 8, we see he calls Daniel. He says, at last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar. And after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods? I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. 
So like I said, isn't this, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is a very strong, powerful person until he's not, right? Until he's, until he's vexed and he has a problem that he can't solve. Does that sound familiar to anyone else here? Um, it does for me. You know, when you uh, exhaust your own resources and uh, you, oh, like after you are like just beat down, you're like, let's pray. It's like, okay, great, PG. Um, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar was, was like that as well. So um, again, moving along, um, I just want to quickly look at, again, survey. Uh, let's look at the, the, just the beginning of this dream if we jump in at verse 10. Um, so he said, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. As we know from Daniel's interpretation, this tree was a representation or a symbolism for King Nebuchadnezzar. And I want to stop here and just say, the guy was truly great. He was, um, in, you know, in one sense, he was not, uh, one would not pretend by calling him great or exaggerate. Um, this tree, it's interesting, it, some would say it harkens back to uh, the Garden of Eden and the, the tree that reached up to heaven and was a blessing um, in the garden, um, at a minimum, this tree definitely symbolizes fertility. It symbolizes growth and prosperity. The tree, and by default, Nebuchadnezzar, provided great sustenance and um, protection to those around him, those in his kingdom. Obviously, there was many that were oppressed by him, but there was many that, um, you know, he, he had this kingdom and it was flourishing and God gave him a lot of great power. He was, uh, his history tells us he was, he was somewhat of a warrior king and arguably one of the most powerful rulers in history. He, he was the longest reigning king in Babylon and his kingdom stretched from what is essentially modern day Egypt to the western side of Iran. So the guy was a very great conqueror, but he was also an accomplished builder. Um, Babylon has some of the greatest like wonders of the historical world, and many historians would argue that Nebuchadnezzar had a great hand in that. He was very active in his building projects. He took a, you know, a firsthand. Um, I don't know. He like yeah. He was very involved. He wrote the bills. He made the orders. He, he was a very accomplished guy. He was very blessed and gifted. But as we know, he essentially credited himself with all of the greatness. So as we know, the, the decree comes down um, of, you know, this, this angel, this watcher, this holy one came down from heaven 
and he made a proclamation to cut this tree down. As Daniel comes in, we see in verse 27, um, I'm sorry, like jumping up in verse 19, we see Daniel, he was dismayed. You can see that Daniel cared greatly about King Nebuchadnezzar, which we've talked about to date. We still, you know, that is a gift from God. Just the fact that Daniel had a love for his country and his king, even though he was uh, essentially an exile who'd been taken as a captive from his home. And we see that in verse 19 where he's, he's dismayed and he's alarmed about the interpretation. He says, let not the dream or the, or, um, sorry, may this dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. However, um, the dream is a declaration of judgment for Nebuchadnezzar. And after giving the dream interpretation, in verse 27, we see that Daniel urges the king to seek repentance. He says, King, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the impressed that, may, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. The text is not absolutely clear, and I wouldn't go out on a limb here um, to say that the, the decree from the Most High is conditional, but you, you do get the idea that there might be an opportunity for mercy. There might be an opportunity to either avoid this decree, it's, could it possibly be conditional, or at a minimum, uh, lengthen your, his reign afterwards. Nonetheless, we don't have to wander too far because repentance would require humility and King, King Nebuchadnezzar's not there. He's just not ready. And so as we read on in the text, it quickly jumps 12 months ahead and we, we see the king, you know, he's on top of his roof taking survey of all his accomplishments. And he says in verse 30, this is good, this is good. He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Immediately, we see the command of the Lord take effect. Nebuchadnezzar is driven from his kingdom into the country. He becomes like a beast. He essentially lives in the elements for what a time they say seven periods, likely seven years. And he eats grass. He grows like mangy hair and nails and just becomes pretty nasty and essentially has the mind of a animal. We see in this um, the fulfillment of Proverbs 18, where it says, before his downfall, a person's heart is proud but humility comes before honor. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes in the world, it feels like the prideful and the arrogant just go about their business completely unhindered, unimpacted, oppressing people along the way with no accountability. We see this view in Psalm 73 um, we're talking about the prideful man or the arrogant. They say they have no struggles. 
Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And that is true. We, we do see that. I think, you know, I, I can't speak worldwide, but I, I, think, I don't think this is unique to America. We see the prideful prosper at times, and it would appear there's zero accountability for them. However, we know from scripture, and we, we, I'd say we know from history, there, there comes a point in the life um, of everyone, whether this life or the next, where the king of heaven says enough is enough. And in Daniel 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar reach that point. Uh, to quote uh, the proverb again um, in 16, it says, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. The Lord will have the last word. As uh, I was talking with uh, Nikolai before service and talking about this story, he pointed out who, who's the conquered king when it's all said and done, right? The, the mighty powerful king is an animal in the woods and uh, roaming around on all fours. Pride will be answered. I want to take a minute real quick um, to talk about pride. I could hear some, and I say I could hear some because I've been there, um, saying, I, you know, I don't think I'm that prideful. I, I would never say something like Nebuchadnezzar said. I would never proclaim, like, I'm the greatest and... I did this all for my glory. I think most of us would not say, I did this all for my glory, right? Um, however, I think pride is somewhat elusive. I don't think it is. Um, to go back to that C.S. Lewis quote I, I said earlier, he says, there's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and it's interesting, the very essence of pride is to convince oneself that certain vices, namely pride, don't exist in your heart. So, so literally, the outworking of pride is to convince you that it doesn't apply to you. You're not prideful. That is pride working in us, telling us, no, this, this doesn't apply to you. You're not, you're not like this. Um, in its simplest form, pride is essentially just thinking of yourself higher than you ought to. It is a sin of the heart, but its manifestations are truly like innumerable. Spiritually, pride is always keeping us from God. Um, either, you know, if you just are, have that arrogant confidence or you think you, you can make it on your own, that, that pride will keep you from seeking God because you technically just don't need him but the other side of that is some some have shame or um a desire to protect themselves so much and so so um yeah such a hunger for self-preservation that they also will flee from god out of fear of rejection or just a lack of trust in god's goodness so again i just can't underestimate how elusive pride is ultimately though 
Pride is essentially having more confidence in self than having confidence in God. As we've been working through Daniel, you know, we see King Nebuchadnezzar and his pride is essentially just loud, loud and unashamed on display. But I think in when I was preparing for this and feeling very convicted, I found that pride is very um, subtle in, I think, our, in the average person's life. Um, and so not to drive the point home, but I did some long reflection and I, I just want to read off a few ideas of how pride might very subtly um, portray itself or peep its head and we might have eyes on it. Um, pride will cause us a failure to pray and ask God for help. Thinking that we can manage our lives on our own or even worse, thinking that we what we have is because we earned it. Um, so pride just it, in its essence will keep us from prayer. Pride is that cynical insensitivity to the needs of others around us. It is the presumptive spirit in us that always assumes we see and understand people and situations perfectly. It is a sense of arrogance or superiority about accomplishments, appearances, or possessions. It's a failure to give thanks and recognition to God for all that we have and enjoy. The very breath we breathe, the safe travel home, that is a gift. It is God's loving, kind, generous gift to us. And thinking otherwise is, is pride. It is thinking constantly about yourself or essentially thinking so much about yourself, whether good or bad, to the point where you do not see those around you. So pride can actually be thinking so badly about yourself and being so consumed with your own failures that you don't see other people around you. C.S. Uh, or not C.S. Lewis, um, Completely having a blank thought. But he, uh, there is a pastor on the East Coast. Um, he writes a book, a small book on pride. And one of the things he makes the case of, it's the, the anecdote for pride is thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but just not thinking about yourself so much. So whatever form our pride takes, and I believe we all have it, is truly detestable to the Lord as an insult to his power, his sufficiency, his kindness, and his generosity. So, I wasn't trying to get the baseball bat out here. I'm trying to make, make a case that I think we all have pride. But the good news is there's an anecdote in Christianity in Jesus Christ. And so I want to move on quickly to point number two about the way of our humble king. So if you're feeling discouraged, be encouraged. We have a king that is good. So point number two, the way of our humble king. So there is another way 
contrary to the way of pride. That is the way of hum- humility, which is led and showed to us and lived out for us as an example, but also on our behalf and our righteousness um, through our King Jesus. Although we all struggle with sin, Jesus has shown us that there's a better way. He's gone before us in humility. An entire, and his way of life is entirely counter to everything our society will tell us. Society will not tell you that the way of humility and the way of putting others before yourself is the way of joy. They say that is the way of uh, suffering and misery. But Jesus shows us that is not true. One of the purposes of this story in Daniel 4 is to cause us to long for a better king. Think about this. As we've read through Daniel to date, um, we, I don't know, many, I hope, are disgusted by this King Nebuchadnezzar um, and essentially turned off by his wickedness, his ruthlessness, his pride. Um, However, if we're honest, we have like some of that ugly pride, self-dependence, self-love present in ourselves. We can't help but long for a savior, Not, not just someone who is a good king, a righteous king, contrary to King Nebuchadnezzar, one who's just, one who's gracious, but also a king who will deliver us and set us free from our captives, from our sin, our ruthless, the bondage of sin and like all that comes with it, all the pain that comes with it. Jesus is that king. Of course, we can't talk about Jesus and his humility without turning uh, to Philippians 2. So please, uh, if you have your Bibles, Flip over to Philippians 2, verse 6. So as I read, uh, I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. As I read this, please, I just uh, encourage everyone, just look for the contrast between King Jesus, as described in this passage, and King Nebuchadnezzar, as we've been learning about him over the last uh, six, six or so weeks, eight weeks. So in verse um, six, speaking of Jesus Christ, Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's several, several ways that we can see uh, if we compare and contrast between the two. But just to name a few, um, with Nebuchadnezzar, we have an earthly cr- created being 
who essentially is demanding the status of a God. And yet, Jesus, we have God himself stripping himself or setting aside his deity and his rights as God, I should say. He's setting aside his rights as God to come down to earth and be a servant. In Nebuchadnezzar, we have a king who's proud versus Jesus Christ who is humble. With Nebuchadnezzar, we have a king who demands service. He's exacting service and throwing people in a furnace if they don't bow down. With Jesus, we have one who is a servant. He is the one laying down his life. And the service that he asks, he goes before us and leads us in it. And finally, we have a king who exalts himself in Nebuchadnezzar. He exalts himself for his glory. And then with Jesus, we have a king who is exalted by God himself. So uh, as, we, as we draw to a close, um, what can we do? Pride is, I mean, if it's so elusive, if it's so... Um, I guess, commonplace and every human everywhere has battled with it. And if we're honest, I think we all would agree we struggle with it. What's the cure? I'd like to recommend or commend that the only anecdote is gospel-centered humility. So why we're in the New Testament, if we can turn over to 1 Corinthians 126. I want to read one more passage. 1 Corinthians 126. So again, we have Paul here. And he says, uh, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring about things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, the righteousness, the sanctification, and the redemption. So that as it is written, let no one, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we're going to destroy pride in our own lives, it must start by thinking rightly about ourselves. We must see ourselves as God sees us. Essentially, we must agree with God about who we are and all that we have. That is a start of killing or destroying pride in our lives. We are sinners. As as we just read, we are sinners who were saved by grace, a gracious work of Jesus Christ completely without any help or contribution of our own. 
We did not choose God as this passage says. He chose us. Who does this passage say that God chose? Was it the, the, the spiritual, the wise, the, the gifted? No, he, he chose the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised, essentially the nobodies. This is who we were before our adoption as sons and daughters. And that's who we are now. Not because of anything we've done, but because God chose us and said, you're gonna be my son, you are gonna be my daughter. Everything that we have, both spiritually and physically, has been given to us. As Paul says later in 1 Corinthians, what do we, what, what do we have that we did not receive? is through this lens that if we can start viewing the world in those lenses of what do we have that we did not receive, it will change our heart. It will change our, our disposition. It will bring humility. As an example, I mean, why do we love? We love because Christ loved us. Why do we forgive, which is hard, but because Christ forgave us. So in closing, second closing, um, uh, worship team, you guys can come up. Um, I just would ask you, church, refuge, who do you want to serve? Who, which king do you want to serve? Do you want to serve the king of the world or do you want to serve King Jesus? And I just want to take one minute here. If this king described, if King Jesus is described in Philippians 2, if, that doesn't, if that's not your idea of Jesus, you are not alone. If you don't, if you're having a trouble feeling that or experiencing that Jesus, and you're having a hard time seeing, yes, Jesus says he's good. He says he's humble, but I'm not experiencing that. I just encourage you, you are not alone. But I also encourage you to lean in. Come to the Lord. There is no other king other than King Jesus. All other kings, the wicked, the blatantly wicked, like Nebuchadnezzar, or the crafty, sinful world that like is so deceiving and so alluring, all disappoint. You will not be disappointed with Jesus. He says, seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I just encourage you, We've been talking about prayer a lot lately. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Ask him to show that side of him. Ask him to help you see, to open your eyes, to give you that spirit of wisdom. He will not turn you down. But sometimes we, he does ask us to seek, seek hard. Sometimes he doesn't do it as quick as we want. But I, I encourage you, don't give up. He is the good king. He's the good shepherd. Thank you.